From Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, this is Talking Practice, a series asking renowned designers to provide an inside glimpse into what they do, why, and how they do it, exposing the ways in which their design imagination is articulated through practice. I'm Grace Law, Professor of Architecture and Chair of the Practice Platform. Thank you for listening. Joining our podcast series is a special roundtable episode entitled Practice in an Uncertain World. This informal event was recorded over Zoom on an early Saturday morning in May of 2020, after the Harvard GSD evacuated its campus due to the COVID pandemic. Unlike our intimate one-on-one conversations, this occasion included 13 prominent architectural practitioners who gathered to communicate candid thoughts on the complexion of practice at this unprecedented moment. The guests represent different ages, geographic regions, and architectural practice type, sharing in common the ways and means that they survived the challenges of a recession. Speaking from the philosophical to the specific, we're grateful to hear their unique stories, advice, and reflections. Thanks for listening. So you might be asking why we are gathering this morning. Economists observe that since World War II, there have been four global recessions, all of them lasting a year. The IMF reports, however, that the coronavirus recession is really like no other and is arguably the steepest downturn since the Great Depression. While there is incredible uncertainty in this unprecedented moment, the practice forum thought it would be incredibly useful to share a reflection on the situation. It's impossible for any one of us to have definitive, let's say, answers. So the point of this roundtable is not necessarily to suggest that we do, but rather to share our individual thinking experiences and the questions that we're asking ourselves. Many of us have faced these issues before, and the profession has absorbed changes and new directions. We have also held on to value systems that deeply inform our work, but perhaps modified the ways in which we went about it. So the format for this conversation will be really quite simple. After some very brief introductions, I will ask each of our guests to speak for a few minutes, answering one of the following questions or both. How did you survive a recession, any recession? And what do you see on your specific horizon? So today we have with us Jeffrey Burchard, principal and partner of Machado Civil. Jeffrey, would you wave? Firm co-founded by Rodolfo Machado and Jorge Silvetti in 1989. Jeffrey is also assistant professor in practice. Elizabeth Cristoforetti, principal of Supernormal in Boston. Elizabeth is also assistant professor in practice. Scott Cohen, co-founder of Preston Scott Cohen, Inc. in Boston, professor of architecture and former chair of the Department of Architecture. Jeannie Gang, he has also joined us. Jeannie is co-founder of Studio Gang in Chicago, New York, with offices in New York, San Francisco, and Paris, and is professor in practice at the GSD. Eric Howler, principal of Howler Yoon in Boston, co-founded with his partner, Mijin. And Eric is associate professor of architecture and area head of the MDES group, Energy and Environment. We have Mark Lee, who joins us from Los Angeles, principal and co-founder with Sharon Johnson of Johnson Mark Lee and chair of the Department of Architecture. Rahul Marotra, principal of RMA Architects in Mumbai and Boston, 
two-time chair of the Department of Urban Planning and Design and is currently our Dean Designate. Toshiko Mori, founder of Toshiko Mori Architect in New York, 1981, former chair of the Department of Architecture and professor in practice. Paul Nakazawa, associate professor in practice of architecture and chairman of Snohetta's advisory board, director of Mass Design Group Boston, and he was a founding member of AMO, the research and development arm of OMA. Linda Neri, principal and co-founder with Rosanna Hu of Neri and Hu, Shanghai. He was also the Portman Design Critic at the GSD this past fall. It seems like ages ago. Jacob Rydell, Senior Director at WeWork, co-founder and editor of CLOG and assistant professor in practice. Max Goggin, Principal and co-founder with Merrill Ellum of Max Goggin Merrill Ellum Architects in Atlanta with its beginnings in 1984. Mac was also former chair of the Department of Architecture and is professor in practice. So this is just a, a wonderful group of colleagues and friends to the GSD alums. I'm so grateful for all of you to participate this morning. Mac, if you would kick us off, can you tell us about a past experience? How did you survive a recession? And what do you see on your specific horizon? Well, it's kind of interesting you asked me to start this off because I, reflecting on sort of how I got into architecture, it reminded me First of all, that uh, I met my partner in school, Merrill Elam. We were not partners then, but uh, became partners later. And I also entered the practice in architecture in 19, in the middle 60s, 66 through the 70s, when we were in a deep, deep depression here in, in uh, recession in the U.S. Architects had kind of... Uh, developed a reputation of being not so responsible for clients' needs and whatnot. And I went, it happened, just happened to go to work for a firm here in Atlanta who founder had uh, developed a, a new kind of practice where it very much against the American Institute of Architects uh, sort of principles where he was guaranteeing the time and cost control of projects. In other words, he would, he would write all the contracts for, for all the uh, contractors on the, on, that actually built the building as well as all the subcontractors. They had a very unique way of approaching architecture. And, and so in the 70s, when literally architects had no work whatsoever, uh, we were flourishing. We did work all over the world, including New York City, when absolutely nothing was being being built built there and so we Merrill and I Merrill ended up at that firm as well I ended up being the president of the firm and in, in, in charge of uh, design and Merrill was a principal in the firm we left there in 19 I think 84 and the the reason I'm mentioning this is not just because we were doing this kind of uh, different kind of practice, but the diversity of project types that we uh, experienced under that uh, kind of practice was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. From hospitals to university work to all kinds of work in the private uh, realm and public realm. And so we, we have, I, look, I made a list, I made a list. It's like 30 different project types 
And I think that that diversity of, of project type and experience has really uh, served us well through many recessions and uh, has kept us uh, afloat because we, we could always find a, a type somewhere uh, across the country and we were used to doing work out of the city. We did very, very little, almost no work uh, in Atlanta and, and still do uh, almost no work here in Atlanta. Our, our work, again, because of these early experiences has always been, uh, been spread out. Um, to bring you up to date, it's interesting in the times that we're going through now because it, it, it does reflect back on those times. And uh, we, um, just to give you an idea of what we're doing now, we, we just finished up a 1,800-unit apartment complex in Queens, uh, a master plan for a complex in uh, Philadelphia for the same developer. We've only worked for one developer in our entire life. We've never been able to penetrate that market very much, but we just happen to have one of the best in the world that we're working for. We're doing a condo at uh, a condo unit, a very large condo unit at uh, Columbus Circle in New York City, which has been interesting over the last few months. It stops and starts. They can only allow certain trades on the site at, at certain times. So that's been a, quite an a interesting uh, uh, project for us. Here in Atlanta, we're doing, which again, we don't do that much work here, but here in Atlanta, we're doing a small uh, museum that is a really, really interesting museum. It's, it, they, they support young and uh, young artists and local artists uh, of all uh, types and, and backgrounds and uh, have done been a huge success over uh, many years. We're working on a federal courthouse in Des Moines, Iowa. That's a, a recession-proof project that uh, it's nice to be able to do work for, you know, for the federal government. This is our second uh, courthouse. Interesting process we, to uh, be able to get not only on the list, but to uh, get chosen for a, a project like that. So we enjoy that that uh, kind of project mix. And then lastly, uh, again, sort of one thing that's characterized us is we, we actually own our own building that we bought about 20 years ago in downtown Atlanta when it was really tough, very, very tough place, tough neighborhood. And what's interesting over the last years, uh, Georgia State University has bought up all the buildings and moved in them. And so we're presently in the process of developing our own site uh, with a developer, a local developer that was part of the uh, Tishman Spire for a, a number of years. And so we've become entrepreneurs uh, and we'll see we, because we, we're anxious about how uh, the present times around the, uh, that we're facing right now, how that might uh, affect that development. It's about a 700 bed uh, building. So it's, it's, a, it's a tall building. So it, it could be a major project for us. And in fact, could be something that kind of pays off in terms of investment.
Mac, thank you so much. That's a lot. <laughs> That's lots, a lot of work, actually. Everyone apply to Max Goggin. <laughs> I'm going to turn the same question now, actually, to Jeannie Gang. Jeannie, your thoughts on this question. Thank you, Grace. And Mac, it's great to hear your story of so many amazing projects. For me, um, I, I wanted to get started on my own since I started studying architecture and and I um, I really wanted to um, practice my own way and follow the things that were interesting to me. So I, I kind of always knew I was going to start the practice. Um, and um, when I did do that, I, I really had no, it was very like, in a way it was just a very strong feeling and and not uh, very planned out. I just knew I had to do it. And I had just like one tiny, tiny project, uh, which was a renovation of um, a loft interior. Um, and that, and that was it. It was, that was it. I just did it. And um, really with, it was very naive, I guess, in retrospect, but I just felt it so strongly. I had to like get started on my own. And um, so I learned a lot about setting up the a practice and everything I was, you know, first I was joined by a few of my students from IIT. Um, and then um, later, um, my uh, another partner and and Mark, my current partner, uh, joined me eventually after a couple of years where I had you know enough work. But what I did learn from doing that was just how to do accounting and the books, how to be set up their, my own tech, you know my my network, which was really funny for a while because um, when we were about nine people. Um, I would be in a meeting with a client and suddenly I would, you know, get a call from someone at the office that the computers are down. <laughs> so I'd have to like, you know, fix the computers. But anyway, you just learn everything about getting what needs to be done. And that ended up paying off later on when, um, you know, when I could finally hire people to do specifically those things like, computers and financial stuff and um, payroll and all that. So um, I think that helped me a lot in terms of being a resilient uh, business. Um, we, like Mac, we had so many weird variety of projects in the, in the recession of 2008. And so, um, you know, some of them just kept going and other ones didn't. And it was, it was, we were able to, just uh, survive by um, making less money and and just you know kind of really cutting down on any expenses. And the, what the, what was the good thing was about that period was just that um, I used that to strategize about how to grow the business, I grow bigger, like how because we were so non-hierarchical. Um, you know what I mean? It was like um, just totally flat organization. But then, you know, if you're going to start doing larger projects and more work, what what are the ways that one can organize one's practice? And therefore, um, I didn't just do that by myself. I had some um, advice, some business advice. But everything that they told me about, you know, growing the practice, it just didn't fit. 
so we started internally at you know like just all of us architects um thinking about it at that point we were probably about 30 people and um we had we had this great collection of different diagrams that everyone came up with about what the organization could be like um so we did that and then we also invested in more technology which was you know like learning certain programs at the time it was like bim switching over to bim uh, so it was kind of like a good time to do these longer term things that, that you just don't have time to do when you're so busy with your projects. That's a great segue because it's almost as if we're talking about other things that we could also be doing simultaneously. It's like self-education. So I, I think that's terrific. Um, Paul Nakazawa, can I turn to you next? And again, to talk about this question of how did you survive a recession? Okay. Um, I'm going to tell you a story of failure and success. So early in my career, uh, not long after the GSD, I was one of the senior members of a 400-person firm uh, based in Charlotte, North Carolina, with offices along the East Coast and in the United Kingdom. So this is in the 80s. And uh, the, the, uh, it was at, the, at a time we'd just gone public, actually, on the London Stock Exchange. So this is one of the early experiments in public ownership of, of a firm. So at our largest, we were 400 people. And in the course of three years, we went bankrupt. And 400 people lost their jobs. So this was a scarring event for me because I, I was one of the, the parties in, the, in a responsible position with the firm. And so um, since my career has been more as a managing principles, which is keeping, the, the, keeping firms in business, <laughs> And, and uh, attending to a lot of the mundane things, I've always ha had to have an eye on what do you tell your staff? What, how, how do you manage a, a collective when you know that things are, are, are bad? And how, how do you grow as a consequence, not only personally as a firm, but also how do you continue to coach individuals who you know may or may not be with the firm to continue to be viable? In, in, in times of hardship. And so the, these are hard lessons uh, that I've had to learn over many kind of cycles. And I can probably boil it down to three things. So the first thing is that all of you have everything you need to survive. You may or may not realize it, but all of you are intelligent, you're talented, you're, you're, you're thinking people, and the thing that you probably don't have are the reflexes to, to, uh, for survival in certain contexts that have changed. So the GSD has made you fit to be students. You're, you're super students. You're really fit to do that, the, the, thing of, the work of being in an educational context. And now you need new muscles you need to go to the back to the gym and work out new muscles in order to figure out how to acquire a new repertory of, of fitness in a different context. So fitness at the GSD is not fitness in the outside world. Fitness requires you to exercise different muscles than you did at the GSD. It's not giving up muscles, it's acquiring new ones. 
discovering muscles you didn't know you had. And remember, anytime you go to the gym after not working out, you feel like hell the first time you did it. So, you know, being sore and, you know, feeling like beat up is a consequence of learning that you're, you're going to have a, an additional repertory that you didn't have before. But since you have native intelligence, you have talent and everything like that, you have stuff to build on that many other people do not. So that's one. Second thing is, don't do, don't do it alone. <laughs> I think all of us who have, have made any success of ourselves in practice or in any other aspect of life had other people around us who could actually correct things that we were doing that were, were harebrained or if we were in panic or whatever, were steadying influences in our life. And everyone will have different people around them. Some will have family, some will have friends, some will have professional colleagues. So the context of, of, of how you do things not alone uh, is, is a big thing. So if you have no work, get into a discussion. You know, a lot, of, a lot of work comes out of not looking for a job, but being in the right discussion with different people. And out of that grows new businesses, new thoughts, new things. And uh, my last job was as managing principal of Moshe Safdie. But, at, at, but we, at the end of a depression, there wasn't much left to manage at one point. I mean, Safdie's practice is doing great right now. But at one point, we were at the low ebb. And I said, you know, Moshe... I got nothing to manage anymore. So <laughs> I got to go out and do something else. He said, well, yeah, you're right. But th that, at that moment, I needed to reestablish my career. And then I, I no longer was a managing principal. I became a consultant. But it was only after joining with other people who had different skills, skill sets. I spent 10 years with, with two other women one of whom worked for me in New York, developing a, a, a separate business that would la it would be a 10-year kind of growth period, which developed a different level of, of competencies and other things. So that's the, the second thing. It's don't, do, don't do things alone. Find people and find a, a areas to get involved, even if it's not a direct job hunt. And the third thing is you've got to control your emotions. So you have to learn how to listen to yourself and you have to be able to face your fears in ways that you're not controlled by a negative uh, narrative. Okay. It's easy to get caught up in a negative narrative at this point, but you're only as good as you can listen to yourself and understand what you need that is essential and what you can do to face the fears that you've got. Well, those are those right. are fantastic. This kind of like triad of, of suggestion. Right. We're definitely going to come back. Right. If you can do all three, it doesn't matter what hole you're in, you'll get out of it. <laughs> and I that, that, that's uh, so actually... every every one of you it has a different specific situation, but if you can do all three of those things, you'll be fine. That's actually very good advice at any time in life. Any um, <laughs> Lyndon, Lyndon, I'd like to turn to you because you actually have a very specific situation having also been in China during the SARS epidemic. Tell us your thoughts. It was interesting because I left the GSD in 1992 and that was a great recession. So 
I worked for five different practices in New York because I was so idealistic. I remember getting an offer uh, from Gensler and uh, I found out that a colleague and a very good friend of mine um, was paid $2,000 more per year. So I decided over my weather decomposed body will I work because I thought I was a better designer. Um, well, I turned out down and then end up uh, struggling to find uh, real work. So uh, for, for two years, I worked for five firms and finally landed at Michael Graves, thank goodness, uh, at, because Rosanna was going to Princeton at that time. Uh, at at certain point, you know, coming out of the GSD, you didn't really want to work for Michael Graves, but actually that was the best experience I could possibly have. Uh, because in 1999, um, the Asian crisis hit and we lost 17 Asian projects. I still remember that. And being the person in charge of those projects, I had to scramble and convince some of those Asian clients to bring those money to New York. And that's the reason why Michael Graves at that time entered into the New York market with all the towers. I think he did four at the end. Um, and you're right, Grace, in 2003, I was here uh, working for Michael Graves um, when SARS hit and I was stuck. Uh, it was originally supposed to be six weeks. Uh, it extended to six months and then I was stuck for a year. And that was when I saw many different possibilities. I went to all the factories and that's when I realized um, it's, it's, you know, design is more than just architecture. Uh, I was doing interior projects, even though I, I didn't really have much experience at that time. And I also managed to see uh, people do uh, furnitures, accessories, objects, uh, all these different things. Now at Michael Graves, that was very important, but this was pushed to its limit. And so it was at that uh, end of that year when I, uh, was allowed to go back uh, to the office. Um, I worked for another three, four months and then I resigned. And that's where we started our practice. That's when I saw the opportunity. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, in, in 2008, there was another global, I mean, we were three years into our practice, hardly have any architectural pro uh, uh, projects, but the products, um, interiors allowed us to keep us afloat, uh, not as prolific, not as prolific as Mac, uh, with all the different architectural typology, uh, but at least it allowed us as a practice to be uh, multidisciplinary and in that process understand different facets of design. And I think this actually helped us tremendously. That's so helpful, Lyndon. Thank you so much. I'd like to now turn to Rahul, who is also practicing overseas. Rahul, could you share your thoughts, please? Thanks, Grace, and great to be part of this discussion. So, you know, I started my practice in India in 1990, and uh, I was living and practicing there, continue to do that, but I began to teach in 2003 or 2004. And one of the reasons I began to start teaching, which wasn't part of my trajectory, was because I couldn't deal with a booming economy, uh, because I'd set up my practice in a complete flat economy in a recession when I went back from the GSD after graduating. And I think what we landed up doing, which was interesting in reflection, uh, was a real diversity of projects. I mean, we did everything, anything we got because the economy was so flat. So we did 
interiors, we did historic preservation, we began to get involved with issues of the city with documentation. And, you know, and I think as Paul pointed out, that put us in the middle of conversations and discussions that led to projects, we began to realize the potential of um, self initiated projects in that kind of economy. Uh, we began to develop what I call instruments for advocacy, because we began to partner with NGOs. It was a bizarre schizophrenic uh, extreme diversity of the kinds of projects. I mean, one would, uh, you know, start the day with consultants and end the day with community groups. Uh, it was complete schizophrenia, but it kept us busy. Uh, it, in reflection, made me realize two or three things. It made me realize uh, how important diversity was and constructing that diverse ecology uh, actually made us very resilient as a practice uh, in an economy that was going south continuously. Uh, it also allowed us to identify and connect. And the way I described it, it is it allowed us to create a really productive intersection between what I call our spheres of concern and our spheres of influence. We all have great spheres of concern. We, you know, over a drink and discuss climate change, till the cows come home. But we get up in the morning and we are back to sort of a working drawing or trying to figure out an interior detail. And so our influence gets completely minimized. But by this kind of expansion out of default, we felt that our concerns and our influence were beginning to kind of follow the same trajectory. And that was very uplifting. And again, in reflection, uh, I think, uh, I, you know, it's it really, if I had to talk to graduating students today, I would say the two key things would be to find purpose. As Gandhi said, you find purpose and the means will follow. Uh, because I think the clarity of purpose and identifying what your concerns would be given the kind of crisis that the pandemic is going to throw up is critical. And the other half of that that, that that approach would be being very mindful of your networks and the community and the collaborations and the new configurations by which you relate to people occur simultaneously. Again, resonating what Paul said, because the connection between your purpose and its clarity and the networks that you can place yourself in, I think open up many possibilities. And so what does one see in the horizon? Uh, I think the, the best brand ambassador that climate change could get was the virus. And it's amazing how this planet, as we can see, is beginning to heal. And I think for architects, uh, and this addresses the question of purpose, we've got to move from foreground architecture to background architecture. We've got to seriously grapple with questions of repair, of restoration. And I don't mean historic preservation at all. I mean, I think the larger rhythms of what this has thrown up is a process of healing for the planet as society, uh, questions of inequity. I mean, extreme problems. If I tell you about what's happening in India, it's mind boggling. Uh, and it's bringing to the fore the urgency for architects to change these narratives, to in get involved more with what we otherwise just concern, uh, consider background and we come in to play out the foreground. Uh, I think we might have to reverse the way we perceive the world and our agency in the world. Those are very wise thoughts. Next, I'd like to invite Toshiko to share thoughts. Hi, when I graduated my alma mater, Cooper Union, that was the year when New York City went bankrupt. And then to try to get a job, I got a job at Edward Larry Barnes' office where Paul also worked, he's a GSD graduate. And when those kind of extreme recession happens, what we discover is they actually fired very high paid people. 
and left young people who's able, has lots of energy, willing to work, kept alive. So it turns out to be me and another young kid, we became in charge of IBM Towers on Madison Avenue. And I just saying, because this is an amazing opportunity, keep an eye out, observe what's going on. If you get that opportunity, jump on it, because I really learned how to do a high rise. And because of it, I think it's a boring typology. I don't have a tower MB anymore, but I, I know how to build a high rise. It was like amazing time. And so, and then I, after like five years, I went on my own just because, like Jeannie said, I just wanted to practice. Another thing, practical, I actually got real estate license. I went to NYU real estate school. And if you know the developers, uh, everybody has to take this real estate exam. So Donald Trump was the next class from taking this class. Um, and you get incredible case studies. And I think you also get future clients in this way. I got licensed and with me, another friend who is a GSC graduate, Kim Wang, and now he's a Hong Kong developer. We actually developed a building in Tribeca like Mac. We thought we had to have another skill other than architecture to get through this. And it turns out to be it was the first uh, condo in Tribeca we developed. Um, after that, I said, I'm not a developer, <laughs> I can't do this. I'm a designer. So you go through this, but the knowledge and skill I acquired at that time is still useful. I can read all the leases, I can review all the real estate instruments, legal instruments for clients. Of course, lawyers have to do it. But I think that was really good to know how to get, to get your things built financially, legally, and so forth. So in my small practice, Uncertainty is the course of a day. My practice is small. It's between six to 20 people, somewhere in the middle. And we always have to be very nimble. Like what uh, Paul said, we have to be fit all the time. <laughs> we have absolutely no fat in our firm. Everybody is working to the limit. And because I went through this New York City bankrupt, bankruptcy and my office and my home has been Tribeca. So 9-11 was very tough because it was very local, very regional, and we couldn't work. We had to get out for three to six months, but everybody else was flourishing. I think that was a really tough, toughest uh, thing. Financial crisis came, but throughout we learned to diversify, as Rahul says, and I think we do exhibition design, product design, consulting with the clients, uh, historic preservation, uh, commercial work, institutional work, and residential work. And they actually work in cycles. So in a way, I really advise against specialization because I think instead you want to be more adaptable, adaptable and flexible. And at this time, uh, we are doing a lot of institutional projects and New York City, we are an epicenter, but we are allowed to do essential construction. We just got a permit to go ahead with our project in Brooklyn Public Library. So we are really essential workers now. They issued about 6,000 permit in last couple of days in New York. Um, of course, construction workers have to do distance. We have to practice the protection and everything, but we are going. <laughs> and. Um, so our office is legally um, entitled to work at the moment. So, That's amazing, yeah. 
kind of amazing situation. But in any way, I think my um, advice is to uh, be flexible, adaptable, diversify, and then architects work, it's always uncertain. You never know what comes next, what competition will win or lose. This is normal for us. So don't panic. Just as uh, Paul says, be fit and work with others and confront your emotions, which is always being an optimist. That's wonderful thinking. Eric Howler, could you share with us also your thoughts? Sure. Uh, I'm delighted to know Toshiko knows how to do a high-rise building. Um, when I graduated, I wanted to work for Liz Diller, but there was no work uh, at Diller Scafidio. Uh, so I went to go work for KPF, which was the only firm that was um, hiring at the time. Uh, and then I worked on maybe 20 high-rise buildings in Asia. That was my first introduction to architecture, was, was working on high-rise overseas. Um, I eventually went to work for Liz uh, when, she, when she had the ICA project here in Boston. Uh, and I got to work uh, on you know, cultural buildings. I left Dillers Scafidio, I came to Boston because uh, my wife, Mijin Yoon, was starting a practice and threatened to start without me. Um, so I sort of got myself up to Boston, um, connected with Toshiko, connected with Scott, um, and started teaching at the GSD. Um, in 2008, we had one employee. Um, and actually, I was, I was on a PA awards jury with Jeannie Gang the day after Lehman Brothers went down. Um, so we were sort of sitting there thinking like, oh my God, you know, what's, what's happening? It was kind of a crazy time, um, but there was nothing to do. We sat here in this space with three people and we wrote a grand foundation grant. Uh, we started writing grants uh, and we looked out the window and we saw the Greenway starting up and we said, what is this big dig about? And how did that happen? And what is its history and what is its untapped potential? So we wrote a book uh, called Unsolicited Small Projects for the Big Dig. Um, no one asked us to do it. Uh, they were unsolicited, but we said, this is interesting. This is research in our backyard. How did the big dig happen? What was the central artery? Why are these parks so lame? And so we designed new interventions for the parks and we thought about infrastructure and, um, and we published this book. Uh, and then a couple of years later, Audi was looking for a firm to do a competition on mobility. And I showed them the book and I said, hey, I've thought about infrastructure and culture and technology. I would like to compete. So we competed in this ideas competition, 2012. We won the competition, uh, 100,000 euros. Uh, we invested in our shop. We bought a CNC mill and we started making stuff. Um, a couple of years later, Audi had a workshop with Frank Barco and Grafton Architects and uh, Urban Think Tank to think about the future of their campus in Ingolstadt. Uh, and I joined that workshop because I'd worked with Audi before and we won that competition and we designed a master plan for Audi. So in 2008, when there was nothing to do, we wrote grant applications, we wrote books, we did research, uh, and we leveraged that research to do projects, to do ideas competitions, but ultimately to build, um, to build projects for, for, uh, for companies. Uh, and right now, uh, we've got 25 people. We're working all over the world. We've got 20 projects in China and China is busy. You know, things are slow here, but they're busy there. And That's so I fascinating. Remember, okay. We're learning. <laughs> I'm actually taking a lot of notes here. This is fantastic. Um, Mark, could I turn it over to you? Please share your past experience on a recession. 
Thanks, Grace, and thanks for organizing this. I remember in 2008, uh, right around the time of the recession, I was watching a comedian on TV, and he said, uh, he asked the audience, are you afraid of the recession? He said, oh, I'm not, because I grew up poor. So if I go poor again, I'll just feel young again. <laughs> That's a nice uh, silver lining to the whole thing. But uh, it, was a, it was a tough time. I mean, I think we lost 80, 90% of the work that we had, or things were frozen, things were put on pause. And uh, uh, there was a time when one day you hear Gensler fired 100 people, next day Gary laid off 150. Just from hearsay, you, you learned that there are 500 unemployed architects walking in the streets. So at that time we had about 12 people. So we basically called everyone in the room, we closed the door, we had a day-long meeting, and we basically opened up the books and we just said, this is what we have left, this is what we've lost, this is how much it costs to run the office, what do we do? And uh, we were smart enough at that time that we could all open up and, and share our needs. And then we just decided at the end, no one gets laid off. Everyone takes a cut from Sharon and myself to someone who joined us for less than a year. And we said, we'll, we'll go in this direction for three quarters. And we, if we go back into the black, then everyone goes back to their regular salary. And I think that at the end, in retrospect, that was a solidifying experience for us because everybody gave 120%. I think everyone realized that it was a collective problem and how can we dig us out of the hole? And, um, and I, I think in, in many ways, like going through the crisis, we became who we were as a team. You know, and uh, certainly, you know, it took some time before some projects that were put on hold came back. Um, there were unexpected projects, like we never really did retail back then, but a lot of um, online retail um, people who have cash realized that they could get um, uh, prime real estate for much less money than before. So they have this, they, they would have these uh, roll up brick and mortar stores. Um, I was talking to Michael Maltzen, who said early in his career, he won like five or six museums and he thought his whole career was set. And then when the recession hit, all the institutional projects were frozen. And then he had to go into find ways to work in for skip row housing and low income housing. And so I think there's always a, a silver lining in that. That's so helpful to hear and to learn about a kind of intensive consolidation within the office as a team. Very interesting and unusual. Scott, could I turn it to you next? Yes. Well, so many things have come to mind in looking back at past crises. We're all being biographical, and uh, I, I have to say that uh, when I was in school, we were finishing, well, no, it was dead in the middle of the, uh, the 1980s, early 80s recession, a really big one, uh, really the biggest one before the 08. Um, and this is an incredible time intellectually, though. I mean, it was a time when the postmodern was emerging, the period that right now a lot of students are so preoccupied with, a kind of dispute about whether to sort of revisit commitments to the modern, to the European modern project, and to kind of, let's say, contest the, the market-driven postmodern in America. And it was a really interesting you know, it was a difficult and interesting debate period. And so I'm thankful, by the way, that that was happening. And I think it was a lot of that was owing to the fact that we were in that period of paper architecture. People were not building, they were thinking, speculating. So I was at school in that moment of speculation. And I'm thrilled that I had that opportunity. I mean, in a way, it was kind of 
the right thing. And then, uh, and I, would, I was asked to remember this recently by Grace when she held the conference on first projects recently. Uh, I had to do something that reminds me of what Paul was talking about. I wanted to build something. And I asked my father, who was very much a go-it-alone kind of businessman, small businessman. He couldn't. The client was going to have to be his wife. And we had to persuade her. She was a formidable businesswoman herself. And she was very skeptical of my kind of architecture because it wasn't the American market value driven looking kind of stuff. I wanted to do a European looking house uh, in uh, a really banal area in Austin, Texas. So I had to persuade her. And the way I did it is very much in the mindset of my father, a businessman. I said, let's find a lot that's cheap in this recession time and let's try to add value to it the way we build on it. And that's, and I managed to persuade, we got a very inexpensive lot that had the prospect. I proved to her that it will eventually be a very highly valued lot, which it did become later, it really did. This mindset, building this quirky house by means of finding the lot that had value added and that I could persuade somebody to invest in. Well, now this continued. I mean, this is the mentality that I think, speculative thinking on architecture combined with how to overcome odds. This is the whole basis for my entire experience. I mean, and, and, and Tel Aviv, you know, I do, I'm asked to do this big museum and a competition, but we had no means, I had no experience, never had done a big building. We were gonna lose it to somebody who was, they thought if I won, they'd get the job. Other people on the jury were ready like sharks. They knew I would never do the project. Many people win competitions and don't build those projects. I was going to lose it. But what I did is something very strange. I found an individual local architect, Amit Nimlik. He, he didn't have a big practice, but what I persuaded the client we could do is do this for a very low fee comparatively because I didn't have the big overhead of a big office I knew this one man with me, we could do it with people at the GSD so brilliant that they are. We would just have a small team and do this giant project with no experience. So it always had to do with overcoming odds. And I can tell many, many stories through Even to this day, I still look for value adding to lots and poor places that you think you shouldn't build something. The mentality of dealing with the struggle against economic odds combined with your desire for architectural speculation to bring those two together, that you have gained that from the GSD, this is it. I'm telling you, you're going to be driven to do great work by this crisis. So who would have known that Scott Cohn is scrappy? <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to turn it over. It may have come from my father. And, and I tell you, Paul is right. It's a conversation where it, well, it's learning a sensibility, obviously, too. But it can't, can't, yes, it's part of my bloodstream, that <laughs> my father's attitude, but yes. That's fantastic. I'm going to now actually ask Jeffrey Burchard, could you give us your thoughts? Yeah, great. Uh, two quick things. The first thing, when I was a student at the University of Idaho, the most radical professor there said that the most important thing I could learn was Microsoft Excel. And that sort of bothered me at the time. When I graduated from Harvard in 2008, it was the spring of 2008, of course, so the crash hadn't really happened yet, actually. And I was able to get a job at Machado Silvetti, presumably to work on a very large cultural project in the Middle East with massive fees that was basically expanding that office to about 60 people. 
But when I started, I ended up working at a project for NYU in Manhattan instead. And what was quite interesting was that during 06, 07 at the GSD, we were very into fabrication and making things and parametrics and panelization and robot arms. And this, this building at NYU, for some reason, necessitated a kind of a deep dive in fabrication. And I had those skills, I had developed them, I was super interested in them at the school. And this project gave me a way to excel in the office because of my unique command over that subject matter and my interest in it. And I was able to have conversations with the client, with consultants, with fabricators that someone, you know, two months or three months out of school maybe doesn't typically have. Shortly after that, we did a competition for a, for a, a master plan in Kuala Lumpur. It's 21 million square feet, 30,000 parking spots, 47 buildings. The it's the tallest building in Kuala Lumpur now that has been built on this master plan. And through my knowledge of Excel, frankly, I was able to sort of like grab a place on that team of real importance and in the office, um, meaning that we would fly to Kuala Lumpur and there would be 60 people sitting around the table, all of which were at least twice my age, but I had the data and I knew the data and I commanded the data and they needed to make any decision about where a building moved or how to deal with a sub-developer, they needed the data and I had that, it was quite compelling. Now our office took a hit about three years after 2008 because again, we had good projects in the Middle East and they were a little bit behind the 2008 recession. But what happened is something that Toshiko mentioned was that the office lost work, it shrunk, uh, people at the top or sort of in the middle underneath Jorge Rodolfo were unwilling to basically work at the salaries that were available to them. They left opening big holes and then office management. And I said, well, that's, that's an opportunity, I'm taking that. So I knew data, I knew how to talk to clients, knew how to talk to consultants, and uh, sort of stepped into a, a management role and shortly after was made a uh, partner. I think uh, the, last, the last note is that um, it's this, this, this recession looming is very frustrating because when, we, when I started, again, we were around 60 people. Um, a few years ago, we were as low as six people and we're back to 16 and I feel like our office is doing well again and sort of climbing upward and I'm devastated by the, this sort of unfortunate crisis that comes. But one thing that we've done, I think is gonna help us, which is that we've been very interested in working hard on establishing relationships with other architecture offices so that I would say 80% of our work now is with another architecture office, whether we're the architect of record or they're the architect of record, we did a museum in Denver that's about to open with Fentress. We did a museum in California that's about to open with Gensler. We're doing two projects in Texas with HKS and Corgan. We're doing projects in Vietnam with local architects. And this kind of collaboration has allowed us actually to keep our office quite small, but have a pretty big impact on important projects around the world. And I like that because it's sort of spread the risk of uh, the project, but also allowed us to I think have a stronger commitment to our staff that if a project goes south, it's not 10 people's salaries we're dealing with, it's sort of two people's salaries we're dealing with. And that's something that we can uh, spread more evenly or easily across the firm.
That's very illuminating and, and helpful to hear. I'm next going to turn it over to our two panelists who actually graduated in the peak of the recession, Elizabeth and Jacob. So Elizabeth, could you share your thoughts? Sure thing. Yeah, thanks. This is so fascinating. Thank you so much, Grace, for organizing this. Yeah, so I, I did you know, graduate right into the middle of the last recession. I was a 2009 graduate from the GSD, and uh, Michelle Chang and Jennifer Bonner were also, also in my class. I think... I think this is right. There was one person who had a job with a capital J. And I, I believe, if I remember correctly, he was going back to serve his time with the Korean military. So there, there was a sort of, it was sort of an unusual condition for sure. And in the years that followed, um, really the two years that followed, I did a huge range of work to, frankly, to pay the bills. Um, our loans, our student loans were in forbearance. Um, and so there was just an incredible amount of sampling across disciplines and scales. And that really formed the nature of my practice today, um, which is occasionally maybe always agnostic um, to the boundaries of, of our field. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the work was, I mean, it was great, actually. You know, we were doing everything from uh, designing a truck stop in Iraq for the U.S. military during the, the rollback to uh, exhibition design with Dan Borelli and Claude Cormier and Jane Hutton. Uh, I spent a bunch of time analyzing parking structures in Long Island, uh, and I had kind of managed also to wrangle my first teaching gig, which was great, uh, and, and that came with some writing and editorial work. So, um, you know, I, I, I got lucky, I think, uh, you know, about 18 months in, maybe it was a little less, I, had, I, had, I was about to move back to Pittsburgh. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I had this idea that I liked very much about going back and being active in that community, uh, doing some of the things I'd been thinking about in my thesis around housing design and sort of right at the last moment as we were about to pull away uh, and, and pick up and move, I had been offered a firm, uh, offered a job by a firm here locally. And, and that, that firm actually had, had been thriving, uh, interestingly, because they had taken on a range of projects that that were across the public and private fields. So they had bridged from architecture right up into, into urbanism. And so they had really been taking on a lot of public work and they had enough to, to bring me on and, and, and fund me. And I, I suppose, um, you know, I've sort of intuitively uh, absorbed that, that very pragmatic decision to, to, to move across these different public and private scales. And it's really something that, um, you know, that I've carried with me into Supernormal, which is a relatively young firm. So yeah, I mean, what's on the horizon? We have this, you know, really interesting balancing act that we're trying to do right now. I think we've gotten past the, the immediate triage. Um, you know, we are constantly trying to balance these sort of little special rituals and spatial sequences with their implications at a systems level. And, you know, it's just so crazy and ambitious. And it yields these projects that, um, that you know, on one hand are like the future of, of housing, right, with the, with the city of Boston. And that, that scope is expanding because the need with COVID-19 has been expanding so rapidly. On the other hand, we have um, two projects that were under construction and, and those have been paused. Um, and, you know, then we were, we had locked down funding for a project without a client, right? It was a housing project. Uh, we were going to be doing it on our, on our own. The, the development actually continues to happen. We were leveraging some of our, um, some of our data and software related work to create a spin out. And we just lost $500,000 a couple of weeks ago. So, um, you know, that's huge. That's a, that's a huge thing. And I'm like really disappointed about it. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist. I think there's, there's a lot there. This is a time obviously, and we're going to have a huge amount of ups and downs, but, um, you know, there's an incredible amount of in, in invention that lies in these triggering conditions. And they seem to amplify latent things that we haven't been seeing so clearly for the good and the bad. And there's no question that in my mind, these are, these are opportunities for design. So that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I get. That's fascinating, Elizabeth, that, you know, also to talk about how the nature of the products of architecture have been altered because of the time period within which you, you've been graduating. So last, I would love to hear from Jacob, who also graduated in this intense period and if you would, Jacob, share your thoughts with us. Sure, sure, guys. You know, I think, I guess I'm last. So let me just, maybe I'll like, these are such inspiring stories. I'm just going to take it down a level and actually just talk about like real talk about what my experience was. And again, I'm speaking from my experience, right? This is not, you all are in different situations. So maybe just to set the ground, uh, the groundwork or, or level set, like I came out of school actually in 2008, but things were starting to get bad uh, where I was going. I uh, had made the decision to go to New York. Um, uh, primarily because I had an offer and very strong interest in a firm, uh, Rex. And uh, just to be really honest, like I had, let's see, um, around $60,000 in student debt between undergrad and grad. So, you know, more than some, less than others, but just so you know what my situation was. And, um, and I would, did not, actually importantly, I did not have significant uh, family responsibilities. So I didn't have to support parents. I did not have to support children. And I think it's important for me to just put that out there when we talk about this, because I know everyone is coming in the situation in, um, and it has a very different experience, right? So just, you know, that's where I was coming from. Um, I think when my first move, when I, my first thought when I was making that move, uh, deciding to go to New York is I wanted to kind of reduce, I knew things were going to be rough and I wanted to reduce my like personal overhead as much as possible. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing that I knew I was going to be spending money on was rent. So basically, I just was determined to find a place that I knew I could pay if I were on unemployment, essentially. So um, it's the critical factor in my like first few years of work was that I found a rent-stabilized apartment in the final landing approach to LaGuardia. Uh, it was actually an awesome apartment in Jackson Heights, uh, except the TV would freeze when the airplanes would come down certain like to a certain height. But that said, it was like it was a game changer for me because basically it gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do at that time. And that was a personal decision I made. Um, remarkably, my roommate friend is still in that apartment. So if anyone needs a hookup, I can tell, I'll see, I'll call Lewis and see if uh, he's still got that room available. Um, but it was like a ridiculous price. And those things, and I'm just saying that like both anecdotally, but also these decisions really make a difference. Uh, I think when, in, 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 in informing the decisions you make, both as designers, as professionals, and in the projects you do, okay? So um, just to, again, tell you a little bit about then what my experience was, I uh, started at Rex the, about a couple days after one of their major projects in the office had died. Uh, and they had literally gone from, I think, around 35 to 40 people a few days before I started to 15. And I, I, I show up. So I was like, who the hell are you? Uh, it was a very interesting first few weeks. Over time, though, it did become an incredible experience. And, um, and a lot of it actually came from the instability of the time. Uh, now I'm just going to like, since I know we're very short on time, I just want to say the three things that really, I think, the answer the question, how I and a lot of my colleagues survived this period, to use like a, a, an overly, maybe, maybe a bit of an overly dramatic term, but I think the number one thing was really friends. And I really want to emphasize that to everybody on this call right now. By friends, I mean the wider network of colleagues. You are all, like everyone on this call right now, your classmates, your friends, lean into that network. When we were, um, when I was in my first jobs, like we would, you know, we actually, my three years at Rex, we came in second in a lot of incredible competitions, but we consistently came in second. So what we do is, you know, we would call around and when we would need people, I would call my friends see who needed work. 
when we would have to then like reduce sizes when it came in second, we would call around other friends and offices. And that's really how we all kept each other employed. And frankly, a lot of side projects and then incredible uh, things came out of that years later. So really, really lean into that. Don't take that for granted. And a lot of it that will both keep you um, nourished, but also will keep you sane and will, and will lead to incredible things. This is the best network you could ever have right now. Um, the other thing I'd say is just, it's an overused term, but stay nimble. Uh, don't worry about um, following uh, what you might have a sense of like what types of work you're supposed to do in a sequence. You're supposed to do CDs first and then you're going to learn how to, you know, all that stuff. I would say don't worry about it. You will get that experience over time. Um, in my personal experience, I ended up actually getting all of my office management hours uh, in my first couple of years, which was bizarre. And I actually didn't get to touch CDs for probably like until I was like three years into my career. Uh, that was just how things worked out for me. But that went in a different direction. But at the end of the day, it does add up. And I think being willing to be open to those uh, kind of potentially like winding paths will really help you also, frankly, being able to do things in addition to design will really be valuable in um, practice and in offices. And then um, I guess, you know, that's what good came out of this. Uh, from a personal standpoint, again, I think that as a result of all this churn and the kind of network that was built, projects like Clog actually came directly out of this period. Uh, you know, frankly, we all met through Rex and then had you know, dispersed all over the world. Um, but, you know, there's always like one of us who was underemployed. So we could always kind of shift the workload around. I think that other projects and competitions office US, other things came out of the networks that were built through actually instability and the, um, the turn of that period. And I'd say that that's, that was actually really valuable. Uh, I ended up with a network around the world that we are still working together today as a result of the period where um, really there was so much movement. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that'll, that'll sum it up. I think that just if I were going to say a few, like to summarize, um, one, I think what matters, friends matter, place really matters. I think that that's something to really keep in mind what city you go to there, it's related to friends in your networks, but just there's no right or wrong answer. Just be intentional about that. And that leads to being intentional. I think just know that the decisions you make, in many cases, there isn't a right or wrong answer, just as long as you know why you're doing it. I think that that is, um, just don't take that for granted. And then also I think flexibility uh, is just, and being nimble is just essential. Uh, as far as what's on the horizon, I'll bet, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows uh, what is going to happen now. This is actually a really, uh, obviously an unprecedented situation. Uh, what I do suspect is that trends that we've been seeing up until now, where uh, you've seen you know, architects, uh, the kind of notion of what it means to practice architecture, different players entering the kind of the space of not, not just traditional practices, but other players such as coming from tech, like you're going to see, continue to see that happening. But what I will want to, I do want to emphasize is, and I just noticed my personal experience, uh, my time at WeWork and when other um, kind of related companies that aren't traditional architecture practices is the core competencies and skill sets that architects have are absolutely valued and essential in those rooms. And the moment you're in a room as the architect, or as someone with that background, surrounded by other people uh, who don't have that background, like that is valued. And I think you can use that skill both in traditional, what I would call traditional architecture practice, but in a host of other uh, ways of engaging in the world and frankly shaping the built environment in the world we're in today. So thank you so much, Jacob. That's really helpful to hear your voices. It's amazing the number of things that have been coming out of this conversation, fitness, flexibility, scrappy, language of business, Excel, own the data, Gandhi, opportunism, books, grants, 
mentorship, self-education, consolidate your team within and without external collaboration, control your emotions, diversify diverse ecologies, self-initiate projects, inventions, small decisions, add up, and by God, have friends. All right, so uh, we have a lot of questions from our students who will join us, and um, John Wang is collecting them, and I would ask all the panelists, maybe it's a little bit difficult because you'll have to unmike yourself. I want you to speak spontaneously if you have a thought on answering some of these questions. One of the first questions that have come in from our students, and again, students, please chat towards John Wang, who is consolidating these questions for us. So one of the first questions that has come in from the students, what is the skill or muscle that you keep referring to that you would encourage us to develop during this time? They want to know specifically, do you have some ideas on the skill and muscles that you would encourage? Well, they vary from person to person because everyone's background is different. So everyone will have different things that you need to develop. But I think I'd go back to things that everyone has said, which is there's uh, certain people are, are less flexible in terms of their thinking about like what was supposed to happen. And I go back to Jacob's thing is that you have to really be flexible in this. So you have to develop a level of facility of not following a script and actually listening very carefully to what the ecosystem is telling you and knowing what an opportunity is versus just something that keeps you busy. And uh, that's where controlling your emotions comes in. You know, it's not, you can't be the drowning person reaching for a log. You have to keep true to what Toshiko says is, or, and, and what Rahul is like, you, you have to have intentionality about what your belief systems are and you can't betray yourself during this period. You have to have a steady view of your ideals, of, of, of what's important than what your interests are and, and navigate around all of the, um, you know, as the, uh, you're in the asteroid belt. So you have to be like flexible, you have to be agile. So agility, flexibility, those terms are, are interesting because it links to another question that a student, there's, by the way, guys, panel, as you should know, there are a lot of questions. So let's try to be as brief as possible and just jump right in on top of each other as necessary too, because there are a lot of questions coming in. With regard to things like flexibility, nimbleness and whatnot, how did you make the first step specifically starting one of those discussions that allowed you to find work, in particular, some of the panels who self-initiated work? How did you make that happen? Can I just say, I think that being a designer is an incredibly courageous thing to do. We're always creating something new and there's an amazing amount of bravery that's required for this. And I think it is finding that strength in you and recognizing that there's fear, but also an incredible amount of strength to pursue the things that you're interested in and, and, and that, as Paul says, are kind of driven by your value system. So to me, it's like courage, like an incredible amount of courage and, and not being afraid to take a chance and, and to even talk in a different language. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it takes a lot of courage to initiate a new project. So anyone have some thoughts on specifically the question is, how did you make that discussion? Yeah, Toshiko, please. I actually took my thesis to a potential client. My thesis was a places of interaction to have a prototype built. And that's how I started my practice. And I think every student think of how to build your thesis and then present it. I think that I, Elizabeth says I was fearless. <laughs> I was a little ignorant, but ignorant at youth is a blessing. 
So I think this is a situation in which all these new ideas, people welcome. And I think this is a great opportunity. When I presented my idea, thesis idea was 1980. So that was really they're trying to look for new typology, new paradigm. And, and I think this is a great opportunity for you to present your project to potential client, just leapfrog it. Well, I just wanted to mention, it's an odd story, but we actually started our firm. The first project we got was a, was a museum, uh, which was odd because we'd never uh, designed any museum. But the reason we got it is that we had done about 10 years of pro bono work at the High Museum here in Atlanta doing children's exhibits. And so the, the, when they wanted to build a satellite museum downtown, the museum director that we had been doing all this work for uh, hired us. That was our first project. So in terms of, let's say, that typology of museum, I'm just curious if there are project types that you feel are more resilient during this economic crisis or others that you have seen typologies or work efforts, either you, Mac, or any of the others, have you found that there's, again, a type that seems to be a little bit more recession-proof? Usually the institutional projects are the ones that seem to have startup uh, during these, these kinds of recessions. And it's, it seems odd, but uh, they're the ones that uh, actually people are, are actually managing their money in ways where they, they're actually giving money during those periods to uh, institutions. That, that, that is absolutely what has sustained us through every single recession is institutional work. Oh, that's interesting because you would have thought that institutional work, given its philanthropic nature, might have actually made people more restricted in this time period, but you're, you're finding that that typology is steadfast. Rahul. Grace, can I just sort of jump in? Please, Rahul. Yeah. No, I mean, another way to look at it is not pose the question through type, but through the forms of patronage uh, and that sort of spectrum. So patronage, I mean, I think institutional patrons, foundations, private developers who are much more sensitive to, well, what I call the impatience of capital, uh, but also communities. And when we talk about self-initiated projects, I think that's another constituency. So, I mean, another way to look at the landscape is through forms of patronage. Yes, that's an excellent thought. I'll um, just add one thing to that. I think that in a way the, the products that you want to do are already right in front of you. You know, it's, it's the things that you're interested in and those are the discussions that, um, that you will be having with people if it's around environment or um, around community and housing. Those, you will be um, involved in those those things in a non-project way perhaps but that is exactly where the projects that you want to do are going to come from um, it's it's your interests and 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 being involved in those interests that are that that are um, con connecting you to people who are not just only other architects but but people in those fields i just want to add really quickly on the question of type like type i think that obviously like to me, something important also to to acknowledge is that, um, you know, your the 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 job that you your your day job, let's just say, doesn't isn't is doesn't necessarily constitute your entire body of work. And frankly, like your it's not that's not everything in many ways. So I think that it's important to take into account is that you know in times of 
disruption, certain typologies do press on, like you'll see healthcare, you know, incredibly like 15 year long projects, you know, will continue. That may or may not be your gem. And, but just because you may be working somewhere that is work that is doing projects that, that doesn't mean you can't also be doing things on the side with that are actually really, you know, to Paul's point really are rooted in um, kind of your North star, the your longer term project. Right. And I think that that's, totally out there and you're at you're at all an age where it, like it will never be easier to do it'll never get easier to do that and frankly like now you have more energy than you ever will and like if you have interests if you have you know passions if you have like certain problems you want to address regardless of where you are working and where, what's bringing in the money find ways to continue pushing that and i'll just add going back to the question of friends and i'm using that as like kind of a catch-all like it is it can be very difficult to sustain that on your own outside of an office if you, you know you have your office I think that's why it's really, if you're working in a practice, to push another agenda, if you can have collaborators all, you know, kind of working outside of that practice as if you're a parallel practice, like it will be easier, right? And assembling that group of people who are ideally better at the things, you're good at the things you're not good at, will like really help you pushing an agenda that might exist uh, in parallel or outside of what's actually paying the bills. Oh, that's very, very helpful. So, I just want to pick up something that yeah. I want to acknowledge. I think this is, it's tough and, you know, we want to say be positive, but I can imagine how people are really worrying right now. And I want to just listen. I feel like I am. I mean, I'm upset right now about things happening in the office. So I, I sometimes think it's a good idea to just say, I'm getting slammed. It, you got to just, we can't deny that. And I'm, I'm with you with the, agony of concern about it. Um, the one thing I would say is give yourself a little bit of a break. I mean, you know, the pressure to like do and achieve, you're going to, we all are going to do it. One of the things that's sort of interesting is to sort of take a step aside, do stuff you really want to do in your own work also while this is happening and think as Grace characterized it in a scrappy way, which is how Paul, I think Paul is, if I may say, also like that. Uh, and know that, you know, two years down or so, it's gonna, you know, this stuff, this is gonna break. So, you know, you're gonna do something ingenious and you also can spend some time doing things you really want to. But, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sort of paint rosy picture. I'm not a rosy picture painting kind of person. Yeah. I don't think it's useful to, to do that anyway. I think, you know, go ahead and kind of confront the toughness you're in. Everybody's in it together. Uh, anyway, I just wanted yeah, to- Yeah, no, that, I think that's a very important, important reminder. Um, add one thing, sorry. Yeah, please, quickly, because we have like 700 questions. No, we have so many questions. questions, but I feel, I mean, this conversation is so incredible. I just want to put also on the other side of Jacob's comment and kind of agree with Scott about the that the take some time or, or the focus. The first three years that I was at Machado Savetti, I did, I think, 14 competitions on the side. And it wasn't until I fully dedicated myself to the work in the office that I truly made a difference in the office and began to grow and have opportunity there. And I think it was because my time and my energy was split. And I found actually that and I think it's true now even more so that firms are clamoring for talented, thinking, articulate, young architects. They want you and you, you all have an incredible kind of opportunity actually to find a place in an office and actually push an office that has the means and the resources to guarantee a certain kind of 
um, let's say, uh, 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 you know, um, security. At, at Jeffrey, was it good that you had your own separate moon lighting going on in your mind or in your real, you were actually kind of moon? I think it was good in a one way until I realized that it wasn't. I think my moonlighting was not letting me see the opportunities at hand. And I then took the extra hours that I was putting in work and I, and I developed new skills and I pushed certain aspects of the office further than they could have gone otherwise. And I think it paid off. <laughs> That's very interesting. This idea of being extremely mindful and focused, even on, let's say, the smallest of the tasks or what even might seem banal at the moment. That is very key thing in life as well. Could you describe how it is different before and after a recession and be very specific and please don't couch it in just terms of your personal stories. Can you be very specific about how you changed or how your practice might have changed its process before and after the recession? The students are asking you to be quite precise here without your huge personal stories, if you can. I mean, I would just a uh... Quick thing to share, I think our uh, scope of services have expanded because before the recession, we didn't, we were basically architects for hire. But I think when the recession happened, what we did was we did a lot of pro bono work, like when Mac talked about doing work for the High Museum, we started doing work that was, we do feasibility studies, we do entitlement, the work that are not about design, but it was about relationship building. You know, like Raul said, how do you expand your network? And we were also expanding our networks beyond friends, but also potential clients. So over this, this time, we have developed relationship with that. And then afterwards, I think our scope of practice has expanded and we sometimes come in to do the entire package for the client. And I think this, um, this issue of, of looking, I mean, Rahul brought this up, but looking to the client type also and being very strategic about diversifying by client type and pinpointing public clients in particular, because in times like this, when there's public need, we're specifically seeing an incredible amount of funding start to boil up in philanthropic and public sectors because there's just there's frankly just so much need there. So 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 taking the skills and, and in a way funneling them and channeling them such that you can start to capture that and contribute in that way um, also feels productive. Yeah, thank you. I have a very specific question to Eric Howler from the students. What is the change in mentality required of you as you moved? from one type of office to another, and then from like one project type to another, you know, having gone from a KPF world to a DSR world to your own office. Can you be specific about the change in mentality? Because those are very different kinds of practices. Um, sure, I mean, KPF, you learn how to work with a team, you learn how to um, sort of guide a large team. Uh, it doesn't sort of develop you as a designer necessarily, a broad designer because there's someone helping you write contracts and there's someone sending invoices. At Dillerskip Video is a smaller firm, you're doing everything. You're hiring contractors, you're talking to the client. So I think going to a place where you can have the most responsibility is super important. It's a place that really challenges you where you're sort of destabilized, you're uncomfortable. Um, Dillerskip Video is particularly uncomfortable, um, but you learn incredible skills there, resiliency. When I started my own firm, um, I had a better sense of how to run a firm and I knew exactly what kind of firm I didn't want to have. Um, so you can sort of design your firm. Um, I was going to say something about the last question is like, know what your skills are because you have skills you may not know you have. Um, and 
a, a quick example is, um, you know, with this COVID thing, everyone's worried about what can we can do and we can't seem to do anything. On the other hand, you have skills that are useful. Um, and so um, in the background, there's a swing that we did a few years ago. We worked with plastics fabricators. And then all these doctors are looking for these plastic insulation hoods uh, for patients. And we said, let's make some. So we talked to people that we knew in the plastics fabrication industry, a company called Polyfab that made our swings. And we started designing these patient isolation hoods that are in desperate need right now. And so just to sort of think about like what's needed now and how we can contribute, it's an incredibly helpless feeling that we can't do anything. On the other hand, we can because we have skills, we know material, we know fabricators, and if we can connect to the right people, we can actually make a difference. So I think that's a kind of positive thing to think about what can we do now and what skills do we have now? And it's, it's pro bono work, but it's, it feels like we can contribute something meaningful with the material and fabrication knowledge that we have. Thank you. I think there's, some, uh, there's an incredibly interesting general question. Are any of you hiring? <laughs> okay, there are like 50 people asking that question. Um, I'm going to let you guys answer that, but I think that's an important one that people want to know. Is there, is there work, especially also in different parts of the world, because you're probably not only, you have projects in different parts of the world. So could you talk about that? Where is work coming from geographically? And if you are hiring, please say so. <laughs> I think hiring is like investing. You need to hire all the time when the market's good and then when the market's bad. So even in a low market, I think we still need to hire. Um, and so um, I'm not sure if we're hiring specifically, but I like the idea of like hiring continuously, sort of building the team continuously, not just hiring when the market's good, but um, you know, there's incredible talent. And so we, we like to sort of build teams sort of all the time. Lyndon, can you share something with us from your neck of the woods in Shanghai? Actually, it's, it's interesting that you guys uh, uh, should be talking about hiring because um, during the, uh, this pandemic period, I, we were really ready to lay off people for the first time in our 14-year practice. And that was very difficult for me and Rosanna. Um, so we actually had a list of people that we thought, unfortunately, we had to let go. Um, but to our surprise, obviously, China started, uh, this whole pandemic started earlier, uh, a lot earlier. And to our surprise, many people started planning when they were in quarantine, lockdown, they couldn't go anywhere, projects couldn't move forward. All of a sudden, our request for qualification went up 40%. So we were kind of shocked. We were ready to, we had this uh, plan B um, to let people go, but then all of a sudden we are swamped with, um, we lost projects as well, don't get me wrong. We lost three projects, uh, some international and um, two local and one international project. Uh, but we just signed on four new projects uh, last week. Um, and there are a lot more, uh, granting they're smaller projects, they're not as large. So. Uh, we can't be as selective now. We, we are actually, as, as people were saying, I was just writing to my managing director saying, um, we might have to change the fee structure that we had proposed yesterday because uh, we were quite tough about uh, making sure that we, we want to maintain a number. Um, I just text him just now saying, maybe we want to change that because uh, I'm listening to everyone here. Uh, but we are hiring. Uh, actually, we are hiring. But the problem is, how do you get here? That's the challenge. Uh, I think China is close to all foreigners now. 
Uh, so it's very difficult for people to come. We actually have made commitments to four interns, actually four from the GSD and one from Yale. But the problem is they can't come for the okay. summer yes, or at least close, not for the, the... The closed so borders are a critical yeah. issue. So we're trying to figure a, a creative way, Grace, to uh, have them work over the summer. I don't know how that's going to uh, work because especially for internship, it's critical to be in the office. Right. John Wang, is there a particular last question that's coming in that either you want to interface with me on or? Yeah, I think um, one other question that some people have asked is, you know, if there are thoughts or kind of uh, particular inspirations that really um, kind of carry, you know, the speakers through the kind of various recessions that they have experienced in the past. And, if, you know, as a closing word, we can maybe that with everyone. Maybe I'll jump in on that, John. I, I think uh, when, when I was thinking about uh, uh, what uh, Paul was talking about, uh, the muscle, I think the muscle of humility. I think whether it be positive or negative, we don't want to paint a rosy picture, but I think it's important for us as architects, especially graduating from the GSD where you think you're on the top of the world and you think you're the best, um, have the perspective, ha have a sense of humility uh, going to the work field. And by doing this, um, you will allow um, many different opportunities to come to you, to speak to you. Um, and so you don't have this predetermined attitude of what a GSD architect should be. Uh, by doing this, I think you'll actually find yourself in the process. I know it's a little abstract, but I think you will, all of you will find this to be helpful if you, if you have that spirit of humility. I definitely second that that we, we are servants of society. We're not masters of the universe at this point. We need to understand how to, how to serve our communities and society at this particular point. I could add to, to that, you know, of course, just building on it, but also I think the idea of generosity of what we can give. I mean, I think this is a moment of not asking what we can get. And of course, one has to make a balance to survive. Uh, but I think, uh, I think being generous is, is, is a way that you'll gain back from it at some point. Those are beautiful thoughts, humility and generosity, two sides of the same coin. Wow. It's been incredible to have you all here. And I echo everyone's thoughts about how wonderful it is to see your faces. There's a lot to talk about. I can almost imagine this being a series <laughs> where we just are able to talk in this very informal way. It's incredibly useful. It brings down to earth so many very important questions that I think our shared experiences are giving us an opportunity to see a breadth across many different types of practices and geographic locations and emphases. And I'm just grateful to all our participants today to have um, shared such an, a wealth of knowledge Students, you know, you are in this incredibly interesting moment. Please do reach out to us. We are here for you. We're excited, very excited to, to hear your questions and to engage you in these kinds of conversations. These are important questions to have and you do have a network. Please remember that you have a network, both all of us here close at hand, but also out there, alums of our school that are really interested and eager to help you navigate this unprecedented moment. Thank you all so much for joining us and please stay in touch. Please be well, please stay safe and let's do this again soon. I have this brewing in my head for another round two. <laughs>
Thank you, and thank you faculty so much. Thank you, I really appreciate you spending the morning with us. I'm Grace Law, and you've been listening to Talking Practice from the Practice Forum of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was recorded over Zoom and edited by Maggie Janik. Research, support, and organization for this special roundtable event was provided by John Wang. To hear other episodes in this series and to find out more about programs and events at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, visit us online at gsd.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening.